Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. This week, Reverend Bauman and I had a conversation with Mickey Correa. Mickey is the pastor of Christ Church Washington Heights, a licensed psychotherapist, and has degrees in history, religion, social work, and an MDiv from New York Theological Seminary. During our conversation, we talked about each of our religious journeys, as well as some topics and issues facing the church today. Hope you enjoy our conversation with Reverend Mickey Correa. So Brandon, it's good to be back together in conversation. And I'm looking forward to this one because we're going to include our colleague, the Reverend Mickey Correa, who is the pastor of our congregation up in Washington Heights. And uh, Mickey has been with us, gosh, I think it's now been about, is it five years, Mickey? Five going on six years. Wow. That's a long time. It's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And that would roughly be equivalent to how long that church has been in partnership with Christ Church um, when they merged into us. And uh, we've had a fruitful relationship, and Mickey has been a great colleague. And our conversation today was originally based principally around getting to know Mickey, but as I was chatting with Brandon, it struck me that perhaps a more fulsome conversation uh, that involves all of us would be more helpful to the listeners and more interesting, actually, over the longer haul. Um, the idea being that each one of us can participate in describing how it is we came to be here at Christ Church at this time, tracking a little bit of our history, our personal history, and our spiritual history. Uh, and in that way, of course, everyone will become more acquainted with Mickey because I think most of our listeners probably haven't spent much time with Mickey, and we certainly want to bring him closer to the uh, bosom of Christ Church and, <laughs> and to everyone else who is here. So, um, I think what I have in mind then is for each of us to share a little bit about our backgrounds, uh, just to uh, start the conversation, and then we can ask each other questions uh, and see where we see where this conversation takes us. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Welcome to the pod. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. <laughs> um, maybe a place to begin. Uh, how about if I start just to sort of prime the pump a little bit? And uh, a lot of the congregants know some of my background, so I won't spend a lot of time with it. But just to just to uh, get the conversation going, uh, I grew up primarily as a Lutheran, although my family moved around quite a lot as I was growing up. So that by the time I got to college, I didn't really have a hometown, and I didn't really have a hometown church. And by that time, though I had gone to church regularly as a kid and as a teenager, when I was in college, I was telling everyone I was an agnostic, although honestly, that was a bit of a lie, um, because I never really lost the sense of the divine other in my life. I know that now retrospectively. But of course, at the time, I thought it was kind of hip and the right thing to say (laughs) that I was an agnostic along with my peers who were at college. 
But what happened to me was that I, um, I discovered that my first love was music, and it was really through music in college when my spirit was awakened. And one thing leading to another, I found myself um, being drawn to consider spiritual matters. So I got active in the chapel and chapel activities and uh, became interested in receiving and helping receive to receive the visiting theologians and scholars. Um, and in that process, or over those years, I... Uh, started my own little study group. Uh, I didn't feel like I belonged to any of the pre-existing Christian organizations on campus. I was sort of an outlier and coming at this from a sideways place. Um, but eventually, through that, all of those years, I, uh, I was ultimately invited to consider going to a, a seminary at the, when I graduated from college and, uh, I found my way going to a joint degree in music and divinity at Yale Divinity School. And it was during that time frame that I awakened to the idea that I would get ordained. The funny thing was, I was not a member of any church. So I had to figure out a denomination, and I had to figure out a process. And Yale being an ecumenical seminary, I had access to um, all the variations of Christianity that there were. And through some, for some practical reasons and for some theological reasons, I wound up a Methodist. Um, and that's what brought me into the, into the fold of Methodism. Although I would tell you that I never um, felt that any of the denominations per se held a corner on the truth, but I did find a great affinity for the Wesleyan way of thinking theologically. Uh, the Wesleyan way, of course, uh, reflecting our founder's penchant for theological discourse, John Wesley, um, with a strangely warmed heart, that is a warm piety, but an active and aggressive care for people right where they lived, for social justice. Um, and I found that combination appealing and well-suited to the present moment, actually. Anyway, so one thing leading to another, I got ordained as a Methodist, and eight years into that, I found my way to Christ Church, and that's sort of my story. Um, so maybe, Mickey, how about you? So my story, I was born and raised in Brooklyn in what's now a hip neighborhood called Red Hook. Ah, right. When I grew up, <laughs> when I was born and raised in Red Hook, it was not the hip place to be. It was actually quite a dangerous neighborhood. Um, it was uh, so dangerous that one could hear gunshots pretty much at any time of the day. So it was not unusual to sort of walk from one room to the other by crawling. So not not walking, but crawling from one room to the other. Um, and sort of true to most Hispanic families, my family's from Puerto Rico, we had a sort of, um, not such a close relationship to the Catholic Church, but we often did go to Mass. And I recall that there was something so attractive about, um, about the Eucharist during Mass. And I recall one time coming from 
from Mass and sort of taking this steel mortar that we had at home and putting Hawaiian punch in it <laughs> and sort of imitating the priests. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my mom watched that and she's like, that's not what's in the, <laughs> in the chalice at church. But there was something about that that, that drew my attention. And um, some, I guess, peculiar peculiarities of myself is that I've always been attracted to sort of transcendent, uh, sort of um, mystical, magical sorts of things. So while I was attracted to those parts of, of church as, as a kid, I was also interested in magic and, and science experiments and sort of seeing things happen, some mm. sorts of reactions. Um, I was uh, born with a heart murmur, and so um, they didn't find out till I was sort of around the age of eight or nine, and my mom uh, became quite anxious because of that, and we started going to church more fre frequently, and she actually sent me to um, partake of the Eucharist without me having... Um, done the usual rites that mm. um, that you're supposed to in the Catholic tradition. And so when I got to the front and was about to take communion, I was sent back by the priest. Wow. You know, Mickey, just as a, I'll yeah. interject, yep. in our last uh, uh, podcast, I talked about the whole notion of the open communion table and mm. how what a powerful concept that is. It was, and, and that's something that's so important to me because the closed table in that tradition actually enraged my mom to leave <laughs> church. Wow. Oh, wow. And to start thinking about what, what about this um, institution um, didn't allow children to have access to something so holy. Um, so we ended up visiting a local sort of non-denominational church where, uh, I guess, of the evangelical feel. And we, we got sort of the acceptance of being in community. That, that was so important for me because given the dangerous nature of Red Hook when I was growing up, I didn't get to go outside and play with children and, mm. and sort of socialize outside of school. So church was actually the space where I was able to um, encounter people that were different from me. Yeah. And that was such a such an important part of, of what it meant to be a part of church. How old were you when you went to the evangelical church? I would say around the age of 10. 10. So around the age of 10, um, we started visiting this church, and we had my mom... Had a she had a personal crisis as well that was going on, and she found solace in, in the life of the church. I have to say, my first time going to church, I was not as excited anymore. Um, I remember going to church my first day with a Superman comic book, and <laughs> and again, sort of uh, finding my way <laughs> uh, of of adjusting to church a church service with something that was familiar to me, which was a comic book. Um, there was something, though, about that service, about those services, that really drew drew my heart to something that I can't explain. And um, true to that tradition, I actually asked to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That was the language that we used, because there was something about that that was calling out to me. 
And so I, I was able to do that. I asked to be baptized. So at the age of 11, I was baptized through immersion because that was the practice in, in that tradition. And shortly after, I was given the opportunity to share reflection on scripture. And this is something that often happens in these small storefront churches, um, which really gives the opportunity for people to not just um, cultivate their relationship with God, but also to start exploring what are some of their talents or their abilities. Um, throughout my teens, uh, as I still was able to connect with church, I was also having uh, a spiritual journey uh, uh, of my own in which while I was hearing sort of the, the theology of, of storefront religion, uh, it didn't all it didn't always make sense to me. And so <laughs> while I I didn't want to give up the church. Does that sound familiar, Brandon? Yeah, it's, okay. <laughs> Shockingly so. <laughs> I didn't want to give up the church, but I didn't want to sort of believe the way that we were taught to believe. And so uh, I guess I uh, engage in this sort of deconstructive process of thinking about God, God as mystery and as love and as transcendent and, and yet near. And that really transformed my relationship with, with church, that I could still be in a setting that did not always make sense, but that yeah. I could still have this liberating relationship with That's God. That's interesting, yeah. I would say it also helped me to become comfortable with people that were unusual, that believed differently, that I thought at times were strange and that they engaged in strange behavior, strange behavior. <laughs> but to also understand why that was important for people. Yeah. And that ultimately um, was in the back of my mind when I decided to go to college. I knew that I was going to go to college. That that just was the way for me to deal with poverty in my experience. And so I went to Hunter College. I studied history and religion. Um, I became less of a member of the church while even though I still attended services, I wasn't formally part of one specific church. Um, but I still felt that um, that there was something more calling to me. And so after college, uh, the first job I found was working at the Coalition for the Homeless, where I sat and listened to people's stories. Mm -hmm. And I listened to people struggle with the, um, the social realities of New York City. Yeah. And that really... Um, I felt God's call on my life to go to social work school. Um, but there was this other part of my life that was interested in thinking about religion and thinking about spirituality and the spiritual lives of people because that was coming up yeah. with a lot of those that were struggling with homelessness. And so I applied to this joint program between Fordham University and New York Theological Seminary, and I was able to to study two things that I love. Um, and it was probably the best time of my life to be in school because I was able to connect with two things that were passions for me. Um, I eventually graduated both social work school and seminary. And yet I didn't need my seminary degree for anything. I wasn't actively pursuing ordination. You don't. You didn't need a, theo a formal theological 
education in the storefront churches I attended. Um, but I knew that I needed that for whatever reason. Uh, true to our Wesleyan her- heritage, it was grace preparing me <laughs> for this time. Yes. And so fast forward four years after seminary, I randomly got this email saying that there were some there were opportunities within the United Methodist Church. I sent in a letter of interest to the cabinet, to the Episcopal cabinet, and I got a call and an interview, and here I am, <laughs> still figuring things out. But... Well, and as you know from, from that meeting, the bishop called me and said, we have this really interesting young man who is really wanting to pursue ordination within the Methodist Church, and would you please mentor him? That's right. And I said, well, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, it was it happened to coincide with our uh, taking on the congregation in Washington Heights, and uh, we needed pastoral leadership up there. And you were fluent in both languages, and that yep. congregation requires both languages, and so it was a happy, a happy serendipity. Yeah. We didn't even know this was sort of actually happening at the same time. That's right. Which I would say is another um, another aspect of grace. Right. Mm-hmm. Brandon, why don't you chime in? And uh, I know that there are some touch points here for you. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I grew up the son of a Baptist uh, music minister. Um, so I grew up in um, kind of what I call like mainline Baptist. So like a lot of the services that I actually grew up in were, are similar in some ways to what Christ Church is now. But in kind of, I was telling Steve about this earlier, kind of like the worship wars of the like late 90s, early 2000s, my dad uh, w- decided to leave the church we were in and start a church called Sand Hills Community Church with some other people, which was more of like a storefront, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, Willow Creek type you know, evangelical church. And through that, that's kind of how I got into the world of like Southern Baptist evangelical non-denominational in quotes kind of environments. And because I was a musician and because I could lead songs and stuff, I feel like I kind of just got swept away in that because you are put, like you said, you don't have to have formal training you don't need any of these things in order to be a pastor or to be a leader. And so as I went to college, I led worship at my college, which was evangelical. Uh, and then that's where I started getting opportunities to be on staff at places and kind of just followed that on uh, to California, where we planted a church there that started with five families. And when I left, um, there was around 500 people and we had just bought a building and so I'm seeing these things happen, but you know, all the people around me are just saying like, "Oh man, this is amazing! This is great!" You know, I really feel like we're reaching people, but something inside of me is unsettled because I'm realizing that I'm not really being myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not allowing people to know what I actually think about God. I have begun to deconstruct some aspects of my faith, like you were saying. Um, you know, even like a big issue for me, and one of the main things I think that eventually drew drove me away from the kind of evangelical thought was their stance on homosexuality and how I'd seen that hurt people and hurt friends of mine. And uh, eventually, we left 
California and came to New York, and I was still involved in a mega church here, leading worship, doing things like that. Um, but knew that this was going to have to eventually be an escape hatch for me to leave that environment and hopefully come at least for me personally into a environment where I could own my faith again and I could actually um, feel like I was being genuine in what I believed. And I thought that meant that I would have to leave ministry. I thought that meant that I would have to give up leading worship completely. And so I delayed it and delayed it. And randomly, just one day, a friend of mine from seminary sent me a job posting from Christ Church, was like, you ought to just put in your name. And I'm like, no, you know, I don't want to do that, blah, 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 blah. I talked to my wife, and she's like, you're going to apply, and you're going to fill that thing out tonight. Have you, have and you met his wife? Have you met Rachel? Briefly. Yeah. She's delightful, yeah. but she means business. Yes, and she said, you're going to apply, and this will just show you that there are other, if nothing else, it'll show you there's other positions out there. And I met with Steve one time, and I still kind of was scared, but I, <laughs> something within me knew that he was going to convince me, and he did, to come on staff <laughs> here at Christ Church. And um, it's changed my life, honestly, mm. um, in a lot of ways. Like I, I feared, and I pretty much know that if I would have stayed in the environments that I was in, even though I love those people, and I feel like they're serving people well in some ways— I knew that I had to escape for my own faith to remain intact. You know what I mean? And being here has transformed how I was thinking about it because I just thought, I'm eventually just going to lose my faith. Like, I'm eventually just going to be a person who is up here leading songs and pre- preaching and doing Bible studies, but don't doesn't believe anything. Hmm. And that was a fear of mine for a long time, but being able to come here and be honest about who I am and where I'm at in my faith journey and be able to serve in the church and love the people of the church and, and you know, do connection groups and communications has just transformed what I thought I would be doing. I've been able to stay in ministry and do what I love to do in an environment where I can be genuine about who I am and what I believe. And so that's how I got here. Yeah, it's really... Also a serendipity, right? Right. Um, you know, I would tell you that the fact that I am doing this gig at all is also a serendipity uh, because I did not plan on doing this. When I decided to get ordained, it came as a surprise, actually. And uh, going to seminary was a surprise. And I only went because there was this joint degree in music and divinity. And I was deeply attached to the idea of God and my experience of music, music being my pathway to God, actually. Hmm. So I was in that joint degree program. Um, I think as a result, I just simply one morning awoke from a very rocky sleep and had this answer i needed to get ordained by the way in the same night i also uh decided to ask melissa to be married so it was a big night <laughs> it, was a, it was a great big night for me wow seriously <laughs> um well so uh mickey how are you finding this path into ministry what's What's uh, what are you thinking about it? 
I have to say that um, I think one of the things that I got from my early religious background is this, the whole concept of holiness. And some folks don't know that Pentecostalism and a lot of non-denominational um, churches actually came out of Methodism. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so, and I got the concept of holiness, of this having a relationship with God. The part that sort of was missing was social holiness. Right. The idea of, okay, we love God above all things. What about our neighbor? <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and I find that ministry has been that place to, to really look at that. How, how, how can I not just love my neighbor intentionally, but how do I also lead others and help others think about this and challenge others to think about this? And so I think one of the things that happened when I went up to um, Christchurch Washington Heights was challenging this notion of we need to have a Spanish-speaking service and an English-speaking service. It was it, it didn't make sense to me at, at one point. And I decided to let's combine both services. And of mm-hmm. course, people had some reactions to that. But now we've, uh, we're a fully integrated church where we can worship God in English, Spanish, and maybe in languages we don't even <laughs> always understand. Right, right, right. And uh, it's, I'd say it's, it's, it's beautiful in a, in a way because it's not easy. There are difficult moments. Um, cultivating one's faith um, means also wrestling with oneself and with the grand questions of life and th- how things are evolving in our world. But it also means being able to find God, the mystery of God in the midst of all this. I think that's that really brings up something for me. And I think for the longest time, everything about my religion was, I, I thought the only thing God wanted to do in the world was save people, mm. you know, for them to come to right belief, right? So everything else falls by the wayside. Save them for eternity. Right. Save them mm-hmm. for eternity from fiery damnation, right? right. right? And so everything is about that. Everything that the church does is about that. Everything that we do in the service is about that. And I think what happened in a lot of those environments, I didn't know, I didn't feel this until later, was was the abandonment of like a social gospel, Mm. like the actual, what Jesus talks about of actually bringing heaven to earth is completely left for a theology of like the song, I'll, I'll fly away. One mm-hmm. glad morning when this life is over, <laughs> I'll fly, fly away. Right. And and looking towards something not here and now. And I think that that is a part of my faith that I'm so happy that I'm reclaiming mm. and wanting to be involved in that kind of thing. Because like even, like I always laugh with Violet because she, she one of the first conversations we ever had, we were talking about politics or something. And she was just saying like the black church has never been able to not be political because it was life or death for us. Right. And I, you know, I've been told the exact opposite of that my entire life, like leave politics out of it. And for, for the churches I grew up in politics wasn't, you know, whether you were voting Republican or Democrat, it was just like, don't talk about anything that's going on aside from this. (laughs) Nothing, nothing that's going on in the world is more important than what we're doing. And I Mm -hmm. think that that really led me down some bad paths and led a lot of people I know down some bad paths. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that, that our forebears, Wesley and others, 
discovered that the real work of loving God and loving neighbor was doing that today. Hmm. And um, I, I wouldn't say this flippantly. The future will take care of itself if we are loving God and our neighbor today. Um, and, you know, in my life and in my career, I have always deeply, deeply um, loved being involved in people's lives in the way uh, in their trying to figure things out, in their desire to um, make sense of what their life meant, where, where, they were, where they've come from and where they're headed, and what does this all mean anyway? And what gives life meaning and, and uh, uh, its importance, its, its content, its joy? Um, I have just really reveled in that. And I love working with people uh, when they're trying to work that out. Well, it's a spiritual community, right? It's right. such an impactful thing that people of all different faiths and non-faith seem to to feel like we, I was telling you a story about a friend of mine who's been kind of like tacitly um, attending Christ Church and just said like I don't know that Christianity is my thing, but I know somewhere inside of me that I need spiritual community, and so I'm willing to try this out because there's just something like even in your story how you were saying like that's what you found in that storefront church was community for the first time that was supporting you in some way and letting you examine your faith and, and allowing you access to God in a sense. Um, that's just really important for people, I think, to know that spiritual community exists and that they can operate in it without having to meet a ton of standards up front. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we're actually, uh, apart from being a pastor, I'm also um, uh, the chief program officer at an organization that... Um, works with mental health and we've started doing this survey around spirituality and um and mental health and what we're finding is that a lot of the the people that come to our clinic um they sense this loss of spirituality in the world interesting and they yearn it yeah and i think i think this is such a ripe time to really pay attention to that yeah you know, um, an old adage that was actually new when I was coming along. <laughs> um, healthy psychology is healthy spirituality, yep. and healthy spirituality is healthy psychology. It, that kind of idea wasn't always uh, <laughs> wasn't always part of the vocabulary of the church because back, say, fifty years ago, psychology was suspect in theological and spiritual circles. And, uh, but it still is in is a it, lot of is them. It oh, still? absolutely. I, I literally, when he said that, I was like, well, we have another podcast coming because <laughs> spirituality and mental health is a, um, a really, we could do some damage on that one for sure. Yeah. Well, that's an important, that's actually a very important uh, conversation to have. And to Mickey's point, I sense the same thing, even though you're putting some uh, statistics behind it, I guess, from from uh, some data from, yeah. the, from the questionnaires you've got from people. Yeah, and you know, this this sort of um, distrust of religion and psychology comes from some Freudian thoughts around 
you know believing in this big daddy in the sky right. you have to grow out of that right. um and actually what uh, what some people are finding it, it's it's not about necessarily dependence as we right. know healthy spirituality is not about becoming dependent it, it's it's actually being reflective on one's right. life and one's values and one's relationship to both self and other right right absolutely that's in a really important let's let's uh mark our calendars for that conversation yeah, in the absolutely. future because that's an important one to have um i'm I'm sort of struck by the fact that you also said Mickey that it is at this particular moment an important conversation an important discovery um, and I'm noting that also at this moment we're experiencing the decline of institutional religion around the world well maybe not around the world i don't know but certainly in the united states and certainly in western christianity <clears throat> although i know it's not just relegated to christianity i know my jewish friends are saying the same thing my uh, muslim friends are saying the same thing um so just precisely at the time when our institutional expressions of of religious expression are are um dissipating in our culture we're sensing this reciprocal or maybe reactive sense that boy something big is missing from yeah. our lives a lot of folks are finding this around the idea of community of yeah. still gathering with others I, I would say it's not unusual that we're seeing a lot more protests and marches people are trying are finding um value in community and around things that are important to them and where they're willing to sort of go and show that i think that the institutional church missed that part of not just talking about what we think is important and valuable but what are we willing to do mm -hmm. which i think is is what the world now says that's why the way church looked doesn't make sense for us what makes sense for us is a movement or something that actually does something something and of course what methodism mm -hmm. was a movement back when it was founded that's right that's right it wasn't a formal religion and it spread uh quite quickly across the continental united states i think it even what it does in our own lives too like a person i was talking to recently was saying that the expectation when they were growing up is that your church took care of you. It married you, it buried you, you know <laughs> what I mean? And took care of you in between. And when you, when you joined a church or when you were a part of a church community, it's like you almost entered into like a social contract with the other people. Like, I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you when you're in need. I'm going to care for you when I'm in need, you'll care for me. And I think that a lot of people are missing that in all aspects of their lives. Like people don't, I don't have that with the community in my building. I don't right. even necessarily have that community with people I would call friends that I hang out with and go to dinner with, you know, but I do have that at most of the churches I have been a part of. And I think there's that that's something that we have to hearken back to, I think, where we really are caring for the others in our community in a way that is is meaningful in their lives so much that when they take stock of it, they see it. And it's not something like, oh, when was the last time, you know, my church or my the people of my church did something for me right well like uh, we just recently had the funeral for 
our oldest member and our longest term member right. of recent years, and that was Gloria Wassar. And she had no family, and uh, but the church just rallied around and took care of uh, the last days of her life right. with, with several of our members present when she actually died, uh, which was a beautiful ending for Gloria. And we managed uh, her affairs following that, and we had a wonderful memorial for her. And it's to your point that uh, we were her, her family. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Very touching. Yeah. Mickey, what else is going on up at Washington Heights? Tell us about Washington Heights a little bit. I think as, as we're talking about community, I'm thinking of Nido de Esperanza and how that that is an experiment of sorts. Um, Say a word about what Nido is for our listeners. Sure. Nido de Esperanza <clears throat> is a infant mental health program. It is faith-based. It is birthed out of Christ Church um, in, at our satellite church site in Washington Heights. Um, mothers with children zero to three are provided with a wealth of resources, both psychologically and tangible goods to uh, be able to, um, to access their potential. And we have a social worker that is the program director up there, and we have a couple of other social workers, and it is a program that's blossoming and really showing this um, this concept of community and really embodying what we hope will continue to be um, the future of the church, in a sense. Mm -hmm. As Brandon was talking about um, this sense of community, I'm thinking about just the, the, the ethos of, of American social welfare history. It started off with this idea of mutual aid. People took care of each other. Right. If something happened in your town, you made sure that you took care of that family that was, um, that was affected by whatever happened. And the idea was that today we take care of, of this family because tomorrow it might be us. And I think that connection, um, seeing one's humanity in the other is, is so important. I, I think Nilo Esperanza is, is particularly important in a time like this because when we think of children, we think of what community can mean for them and the lack of that, um, the, the drastic um, impact that it can have, not just on individual families, but on the macro social system. Mm. Yeah. So Mickey, it's been great having this conversation with you and Brandon, of course, always with you. Um, are there things that uh, the folks at Christ Church Park Avenue can be thinking about and praying about uh, for the sake of Christ Church Washington Heights and for you? I think just continuing our our mission up there and ensuring that we continue to think about um, both our, the children of El Nido de Esperanza as well as um, the congregation that worships there. Um, we're always glad when friends from um, CC Park, as we call Christ Church <laughs> on Park Avenue, come up and worship with us. It's always a good opportunity to to share in in in, in that space up there. And so. If folks are interested, they should come up and, and worship with us. And you worship on Sundays at? 11 a.m. <laughs> right. So it's the same time as Christ Church. Yeah. But I think it would be good if some of our folks found their way up there 
and said hello and shared in the worship of the folks up there. That's right. Um, you know, just as an aside, uh, you've been an interesting person for me to come to know, and I've discovered that you have some quiet gifts that have been emergent over the years that I've come to know you. You have a deep spirit, you have an open heart, you're very thoughtful, and you're quite intuitive. And uh, that's been a that's a great blessing. You have a lot of gifts, and I'm glad for those. I'm glad you're sharing those with us. Thank you. Yes. I'm glad to be in this space that can nurture that. Yeah. Great conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs>